I can walk out to my kitchen, my living room, and make myself a cup of coffee and look out my windows. And we have what's called a nine peaks view. Just peak after peak, and they're, they're volcanic peaks, so they're quite symmetrical. But there's one especially, and it's right out our dining room window. As the crow flies, it's about 20-ish miles away, and it's a big mountain, and it's gorgeous, and it's right there, and it's snow-capped snow most of the year. And I have come to love that mountain. It's, it's inspiring every morning. There's some mornings, I guess, where it's cloudy, I can't see it, and then I miss it. And that mountain plays into my talk this morning, but we'll come back to it. I'd like to describe uh, something to you. So I grew up in a youth, a group of youth, who loved to play basketball together. And there, there was... 10 to 12 of us. Now these were just, these weren't any sort of trained or professional games. These were just good friends who loved to play together. And we played in seed warehouses and in hay barns and in people's shops and once in a while in the park. Every Thursday evening, for most of the year, we would get together and play basketball. And we got pretty good at it especially when you get that, a group of guys working together, playing together. You begin to understand, or you understand each other, each other's strengths and weaknesses, and you're good friends, and you try to exploit the weaknesses and build on the strengths. Well, once you're a little bit good at basketball, you can spot players who are not good at basketball or players who are good at basketball because you have a lot of experience. And I'm going to describe to you three types of players. The first type of player I'm going to describe is, is, is maybe someone who's new. Maybe they've always dreamed of wanting to play basketball but never have had the opportunity. And what you'll see is that when they get out on the court, you know, they're, they, they don't have a plan. They're racing around frantically. Um, and they look as if the very last thing they want is the ball. Um, their body language is screaming, you know, don't pass me the ball. And if they do happen to get the ball, they quickly get rid of it. They pass it or they sh shoot towards the rim or something. Um, they're unprepared. Second type of player I want to describe is someone who believes they're good, but isn't, but aren't really. They're not very good. And they often will assert themselves into the game. Um, but if you watch them, they're, they're awkward in their movements. Um, they often try to score. They try to, they try to be part of it, but they're unprepared. They, they, they don't have the, the experience. Maybe they haven't had the opportunity to become a proficient ball handler. But you can see they, they, they want to, but they end up quite a bit of the time in failure. Then you have the third type, a person who's ready. They, they have experience. They've taken the time to learn how to play, to think strategy, 
They know their opponent. And when you give them the ball, a high percentage of the time, they're successful with it. They don't always score, but they're, they're a part of a team that is a high percentage of the time successful. So keep those three types of players in mind. And I'm going to use that as an illustration for life. So now ever since, ever since the fall of man, God has been working out his plan of redemption for humanity. And often he used very unlikely participants in that plan. He, he's wanting to offer redemption and he's using humanity, humans, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fit people into one of those three types of basketball players. And let's just go over a few. They're either ready, ready and willing and able, or they're qualified but unprepared, or they're just uninterested or not willing or um, just plain unprepared. So first of all, have you ever thought about it, about Joseph and Mary? If, if God needed someone to take care of his son as a baby, someone to, someone to, rock, his, to rock this baby when it, when it was crying, someone to feed it, someone to be a mommy to it, you know, someone to bravely escape to Egypt. He needed someone who was ready to catch that ball. Right? He was ready and prepared. And Joseph and Mary were. In Nehemiah 4, is the story of the Israelites back in Jerusalem after, after they were returned from captivity and they're building the wall. And... There was an enemy king called Sanballat who didn't want to see the, the wall prepared. That, that, he was against that. And when he saw them there repairing the wall, he wanted to hinder the work. He called them feeble. He told these builders of the wall that even a fox, if it went up on your wall, would knock it down. And then when he saw that, that, that the work was going on, he got some allies together and, and they tried to force them to stop building the wall. I want to read some verses in Nehemiah 4, verse 4. Uh, Nehemiah 4. First of all, verse 4. It's, and these, this is describing people who were ready to catch the ball, who were ready to play basketball. They were prepared. It says, Nevertheless, we made a prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Speaking of these enemies. And then verses 13 to 15. Therefore, I, therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places. Even I set people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. And fight for your brethren, your sons and daughters, your wives and your houses. And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was 
known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall and everyone unto his work. Those people were ready to catch the ball. They were ready. And they caught it. And the work went on. So now they were builders of the wall and protectors. Some more. Joshua and Caleb. They were ready. They caught the ball. But the ten, the ten other spies, the ball went winging out of bounds. They just missed it. They weren't ready. Think of Aaron. How often, <clears throat> how often Aaron caught the ball. But then when Moses was up on the mountain for a long time and he was missing and Aaron got discouraged, he, he dropped the ball. He, built, he created a golden calf. Or Moses, you know, at the very start, when he was called, he, he, he was maybe in the category of the player who thought he was prepared but wasn't. So he, <clears throat> he grabbed the ball and played at the very start. He, he killed that Egyptian. He was going to do this thing. But, that, but the ball went winging out of bounds. He, he wasn't ready to play. And it wasn't until he had spent a long, hard time in the desert that then Moses was prepared to play. He was ready to catch the ball. Now, I think we tend to view ourselves as the good guys in, in tough situations. Or, or we tend to view ourselves as if we were placed in a certain place in history, we would have made the right decisions. But I ask, would you have? So, let me ask this. So on January 6th, uh, there was a... 2020, there was a riot um, at the United States Capitol. And <clears throat> Trumpism, President Trumpism, was at a fever pitch. Now let's just assume that the events that day would have turned out differently than they did. And Vice President Pence would have refused to ratify the election. And there would have been a coup and they would have handed President Trump power of the United States. Deep in your heart, how would you have felt? Would you have, would you have cheered the Make America Great Again? Would you have been ready? Um, were you caught up in the spirit of patriotism and the nationalism that was stirred up that day? Or, or through the, the whole Nationalist, nationalistic Trump fervor that was going on. Were you from a different kingdom? Would you have caught that ball? Or would you have went winging out of, would the ball went winging out, out of bounds? Would you have, you'd have missed the rim? Because you were so caught up in the United States of America. Or when the revolutionary or civil wars were raging back and forth across the states in the east where a lot of Mennonites lived, would have you been ready to show Christ's love to both friend or foe, or perceived foe in those wars? 
Some, some Christians caught that ball and played it well. Some did not. What about the Underground Railroad or, you know, when the disenfranchised people needed a pot meal and a place of safety, would, would you have turned them away? How would you have handled the Underground Railroad? Or hiding Jews in Germany. There's lots of times where people, some people were ready to catch and play, and some were not. I just want to read you about a guy named Giles Tillman. This is, uh, happened in the Netherlands, I believe. Giles Tillman was a cutler of Brussels. It was in Belgium. Was a man of great humanity and piety. Among others, he was apprehended as a Protestant. And many, other, and many endeavors were made by the monks to persuade him to recant. He had once, by accident, a fair opportunity of escaping prison. And being asked why he did not avail himself of it, he replied, I would not do to the keepers so much injury because they would have had to answer for my absence. When he was sentenced to be burned, he fervently asked God, thanked God for granting him an opportunity by martyrdom to glorify his name. Perceiving at the place of execution a great quantity of sticks, he decided that the principal part of them might be given to the poor, saying, a small quantity of sticks will suffice to consume me give the rest to the poor. The executioner then offered to strangle him before the fire was lighted so that he would not have to suffer the burning, but he would not consent, telling him that he defied the flames. And indeed, he gave up the ghost with such composure amidst them that he hardly seemed sensible of their effects. So somewhere deep inside that man, he was ready to catch the ball. So in Jesus' time, the high priest was Caiaphas. And Caiaphas had a unique opportunity that almost no one else, maybe Pilate and Herod, were the only other two men who had this opportunity. And they were the men who could pass judgment on Jesus. either life or death. So the high priest Caiaphas had that opportunity. Now I'm, I'm not going to open, read all these stories, but I'm going to refer to them um, if you want to write down these references because it is a very interesting study. In John 11, verses 42 to 53, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, Caiaphas had an opportunity to affirm Jesus. Jesus had just done a miracle. But instead of confirming him, he worked against him. Then in Matthew 26, verse 57 to 68, this is at the, the judgment, um, the um, trial before Caiaphas, where Jesus was brought before him. Well, let me step back. In John 18, the servant that Peter cut off his sword was very likely Caiaphas' servant. And high priest Caiaphas was also the, probably the man who made the deal with Judas. 
So very likely could have been Caiaphas's 30 pieces of silver that Judas had. Then when Jesus, Jesus stood before him, I wonder if, if at that moment, Caiaphas thought of Lazarus, and he thought of the servant's ear that had just been healed. And he had the opportunity to, to he, he could have freed Jesus. And in Matthew 26, verse 3, he says, I adjure thee by the living God. I'm going to look up that verse. Yeah, verse 63. Thank you. And Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. So at that moment, did he think about Lazarus raising, being raised from the dead? Did he think about the servant's ear? Um, so Caiaphas was the high priest, but he was talking to the great high priest. Then he gets another opportunity in Acts, in Acts 3 to 4, after John and Peter, had, God had healed the lame man using John, Peter and John. Again, Caiaphas is there when they get um, Peter and John and they question them. He had so many opportunities to catch the ball and he was the spiritual leader, but he missed it. He wasn't ready to catch the ball. Now let's contrast that with Nicodemus who was also a ruler in Israel, who also was part of the Sanhedrin that Caiaphas was part of. He, by contrast, in John chapter 3, somewhere deep, deep in him, he, he realized that Jesus was the real thing, so he sought Jesus out to learn about him. He was getting ready, he was trying to catch the ball. Then in chapter 7 of John, Nicodemus defends Jesus. He defends him using the law. And then in John chapter 19, and I'd like to read this, that, those verses because they're really pretty verses. John chapter 19, verse 38. Verse 38 to 42. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, brought secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. And he came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. And they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloth with spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid and there they laid Jesus therefore because of the Jews preparation day for the sepulcher 
was nigh at hand. So there again, Nicodemus caught the ball. He was confirmed. He conf- In his mind, he realized that Jesus was who he said he was. And he caught the ball. Nicodemus caught the ball. Now I'd like to go back to Mount Jefferson. This summer, my good friend and my good friend Anthony and I climbed Mount Jefferson. And I'll just tell you some things about this mountain. It is very remote. It is in the middle of the Mount Jefferson wilderness. And it is a long way from the pickup. It is a 24-mile round trip from the pickup to the peak to back. A little over 24 miles. And on, in that 24 miles, you, you gain roughly 8,000 feet of elevation. And 3,000 foot of that elevation gain is in the first eight miles of the hike. Then the last 5,000 feet is in the the final four miles. So it's a fairly moderate hike, and then it's just really steep. Now while you're climbing that mountain, there's a lot of different kinds of terrain you cover. But the hardest part is there's just a forever amount of big boulders that you have to climb boulder to boulder to boulder to boulder to boulder. And you just up the mountain. And then you spend a lot of time walking in scree, which is volcanic rock that when you take one step forward, that your foot slides. You take two steps forward and one step back. And it... Now, up near the top of Mount Jefferson is a thing called the Red Saddle. So the mountain goes up, and at the very peak is a pinnacle. It's not very big, but maybe 200 feet tall. But right at the peak is a saddle. And the red saddle is where you go to if you're not professional climbers. And we had decided that if if we made it to the red saddle and conditions were bad, we would consider that a success and come back down. Because to climb the pinnacle is dangerous. So when you make it to the red saddle, then you have to go around the pinnacle. And to get around the pinnacle, the west, the only way is the, the west side of the mountain has a, a glacier chute on it. And there's a big glacier that's on the side of the mountain, right, right below the pinnacle. And so what you have to do is you have to put on your crampons and you and your ice axes, and you have to four-point pick your way across the mountain. It's, a, it's probably 400 feet, and that glacier is steep. If you would fall off that glacier, you wouldn't stop for a very long time. So that's the big question. What will the conditions be like? Once you make it to the Red Saddle, Can you cross that glacier and climb up the pinnacle? And even once you make it across the glacier, if there's ice on the pinnacle, you need to know what you're doing to keep climbing because it's it's steep. So I had gone to the mountain climbing store in the town of Bend just to ask questions to make sure if they knew what the conditions were like. and, And while I was there talking, he was describing all this to me. 
And he said, just so you know that two weeks ago, a guy fell off the pinnacle and he died, he fell. So there I was thinking, you know, I really want to climb this mountain, but I don't want to fall off. So we decided to give it a try. And if we made it to the red saddle and it was bad conditions, we would just go back. So we started out. We left at 1.30 in the morning. We left the pickup. And we started hiking. We didn't get back to the pickup till 4.30 the next afternoon. When we got to the, the red saddle, the conditions were perfect. That glacier, it was late summer. Winter was very late in coming this year, and it was hot, and that glacier was almost completely gone. So we could, so we could cross it on rock. Though it was still very, very steep, we were able to pick our way across on, on rocks. And then we climbed up the pinnacle and made it to the top. Now... I just want to go through some of the things that we had along with us on that hike. So what was in my pack? Well, nothing extra. That was a really big hike. So first of all, I, we had headlamps because we were hiking all night. We left at 1.30 in the morning. We had some really good snacks, high energy snacks. And we had a lot of water because we were going to be working hard for 16 hours or whatever it was. We had a camp, a, one, a, a small camp stove with, with some freeze-dried food, which we stashed about, about halfway up. Because on the way back down, we, then we made ourselves something to eat because by then we were hungry, super hungry. We had a small first aid kit a very lightweight jacket, and we got super cold right at daylight. But we didn't want to carry a heavy coat. Was, think of all that weight you would have to carry all that weight. We had a cigarette lighter in case we had to start a fire, in case one of us got hurt and we had to spend the night up there or something. We had helmets for the rocks, for in case rocks would fall. We had a rope. Depending, what, depending how that glacier was, we were going to rope up and cross it. We had ice picks. We had crampons. We had trekking poles because it's so far. It's such a long hike. Now, the hard part of a climb like that, believe it or not, is, the, is coming back down. Because you've made it to the top. You've spent all your adrenaline getting there. And now you have all that way back down. And what you need to have, because you're hiking downhill and your, your, your toes tend to get crammed into the front of your shoes, you need wool socks, because wool socks won't slide. So we had lightweight wool socks. And we had good shoes, because we had a long ways to hike in these shoes, right? Now here's the parallel I'd like to draw for us, for me, for you, as, as you're trekking through life, you're climbing Mount Jefferson. What will you need for your journey? What's in your backpack? 
Now, I'm not going to go through and name a lot of things. I'm going to let that up to you to imagine. But if you're going to be ready to catch the balls in life, don't take anything unnecessary along. So leave all the unnecessary baggage at home. You know, it would have been really much fun to open a can of Pepsi at the top of the mountain, but I wouldn't have wanted to carry it all the way up there. I think in order to, to be ready for that trek, you're going to need to cultivate a deep sense of personal holiness. If you're going to be ready to catch the balls in life when they come. And what, you know what else? It's a lot more fun if you have a few fellow trekkers. I wouldn't want to climb Mount Jefferson by myself. It wouldn't be nearly as much fun as the amazing 16-hour conversation that Anthony and I were able to have together. And if we'd have gotten in trouble, if we'd have got hurt, I wouldn't want to be there by myself. It's a big mountain, and it's far from help. Now, Anthony, on his flight, he, went, he flew home two weeks later. And on his flight home, he was flying to Salt Lake City from Pasco, Washington. And beside him, on this, in the seat next to him, was a lady. And they got to talking about his summer. And, and as, you, as you take off, actually, I think he flew out of Portland. As you take off out of Portland, you can see Mount Jefferson often. And they got to talking about Mount Jefferson. He told her that he had climbed it two weeks before. And she said, oh, really? Um, one of her best friends two years ago had fallen off the top and had died. Um, so you've got to be ready for that. You've got to be ready if you're going to climb it. You can't. It's dangerous. So, and life is dangerous. The, the trek is dangerous. So I hope you can, you can draw a line from that illustration to your life. Stand up. Dig deep. Get ready to catch the ball. And take only the things along that are necessary. And things that will help you get to the summit. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear God in heaven, thank you for life. Thank you for beautiful mountains. Lord, thank you for challenges. I pray, Lord, that we would only take stuff along in our life that is to be helpful. To drop the baggage, that is, that is a burden. Lord, I pray that we would sense your holiness and that we would do our best to emulate that. Please bless our day, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.